Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 51, which is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Wonderful. Hopefully you've um, got that passage open in front of you. Uh, Do keep it open. We'll be referring to it as we go. Um, I'm not uh, much of one for the gym, uh, but one of my favorite motivational memes uh, for the gym is of a big, chunky, gray rhino rhino, working out as it gazes longingly at a picture of a gleaming white unicorn. The rhino so desperately wants to be the unicorn, but try as it might, no matter how hard it trains, a rhino is always just a rhino. We're very bad at facing up to the reality of who we are. And that's perhaps more true than it ever has been in our world now, where bits of our identity that used to be a given, used to be fixed, say our gender, for example, now are fluid and up for grabs if we just want to be something different, we can be. I saw a doctored version of this rhino picture, which had the caption added, never give up on your dreams. I don't know whether it was tongue-in-cheek or not, but no matter how hard the rhino trains, a rhino will always be a rhino. Face it. 
Well, to people who are endlessly optimistic about who they can be, David's self-assessment in Psalm 51 is shocking, even offensive, isn't it? Today, David faces up to the reality of his sinfulness, and he gives up on ever changing himself, ever being anybody different, at least in his own strength. Maybe that sounds demotivating, as though David has just given up on ever becoming a better person. Well, I can assure you that's not the case, if you'll bear, me, uh, bear with me and hear me out. In fact, we're going to see that David's psalm wants to drive us to deeper and truer worship of God to better living in his world. No, David is not giving up on change. He's simply giving up on changing himself. And by giving up on changing himself, he's actually freed instead to turn to the one who can change him, God. The one who really can turn rhinos into unicorns and sinners into saints. Look where Psalm 51 ends up. Look where it's all driving. Verse 17. My sacrifice, or the sacrifices of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David is ultimately going to come, yes, broken by his sins, but being broken by his sins, he will then turn to hope In God, verse 18, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. You see, God doesn't want to break us with the reality of our sin simply to break us. He does want us to be broken, a a broken spirit, a broken heart, so that we then come to him to be rebuilt, so that we can worship him rightly. Here's the big point of today then. First, really repent. First, really repent to then worship God rightly. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, I know lots of you haven't been, you've been off on holiday, lots of you, but if you have been with us, and it's worth going back and listening, uh, you'll have seen that the last two Psalms have been building up to what David has to say here uh, about the root to right worship. You see, Psalm 49 showed us rich people who trusted in their wealth to guarantee God's favor to them. Psalm 50 then built on that, warning Israel of the danger of thinking they could buy God off with their sacrifices, whilst all the time they were religious hypocrites. Now that kind of worship doesn't please God. Psalms 49 to 50 have shown us dysfunctional worship, and now Psalm 51 zeroes in on the first step on the road to right worship. First Really, repent. True worship begins with repentance. The psalm today splits into two halves. First, really repent, verses 1 to 9. To then, verses 10 to 19. To then, worship rightly. So we're going to begin with verses 1 to 9. 
first really repent. And boy, did David have something to repent of, didn't he? The title of the psalm here, which is part of scripture, by the way, part of the original, um, the title gives away his most shocking failure, his adultery that he committed with Bathsheba. If you don't know the story, let me fill you in a little. David, the king of Israel 3,000 years ago, uh, one of his servants uh, was off fighting amongst all his servants, actually, fighting the Ammonites, enemies of Israel. David should have been fighting with them, but he bunked off his battle duties to stay in Jerusalem. He was on a holiday. And one afternoon, he saw a beautiful woman bathing on her roof. And he had her brought to the palace to wine her and dine her, despite knowing that she was the wife of one of those very servants fighting his battles against the Ammonites. He slept with her. She got pregnant. And to cover up his crime, he had her husband Uriah killed by ordering him to be placed in the front line of the fighting and then for the soldiers to withdraw, leaving him exposed to the Ammonites. Easy pickings. Did you notice in the reading in verse 14, David talks about his blood guilt. He knows he's a murderer, not just an adulterer. Well, it's not often that David failed. But when he failed, boy, did he fail spectacularly. But one of the most striking things was that he didn't actually admit his guilt for a whole year after these events. Again, look at the Psalm's title. As the title notes, it's, it's only when the prophet Nathan came to him a year later that he ends up, well, really facing up to who he is in all his evil. But when he faces up to himself, boy, does he face up fully. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So easy for words about sin to just trip off our tongue without any real depth or meaning or weight behind them. But David has publicly admitted he deserves to be punished. He, he, he admits he's a transgressor. He's broken God's law. He's guilty. He, and do you notice he's doing his dirty washing in public here? I imagine you could have heard a pin drop the first time this psalm was read. Imagine if I were today tell you about my sins. That'd get your attention, wouldn't it? Can you imagine the moment? But why? Why is he doing his dirty washing in public? Why isn't this just business for him and God in private? Well, of course, David has failed to lead Israel into Conflict, he should have been fighting the Ammonites. 
But now, at the very least, he's going to do something that he should always be doing as a leader of God's people, leading them in confession and contrition. This psalm is one of the seven called the penitential psalms. Seven psalms that God's people have used through the ages to help us repent. David does his dirty washing in public to help us follow his lead and repent. Nevertheless, this kind of public repentance, it's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? Especially for a leader. It makes David so vulnerable. It's the very opposite of the usual political playbook, isn't it? Never exclaim, never apologize. Apologizing makes you vulnerable. It gives your enemies ammunition to bring you down. But, of course, real repentance, first and foremost, is not about what you do before people. Yes, David is making this public, but this repentance is before God. And David knows that even if people seek to use his sin against him, God won't. Because God is merciful. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, God's unfailing love, his never-ending commitment to do good to his people, not because they are good and lovely, but simply because he is good and loves those who are unlovely, and he has promised to do them good, and so he will. According to your great Compassion, blot out my transgressions. Compassion. That feeling you get in your gut when you, say, see your child in trouble, perhaps of their own making, and it, it tears at you inside. And you can't help but help them because you love them. Knowing God's love and compassion, you see, knowing them makes it possible for us to face up to who we really are. Still not pleasant, is it, to face up to who we really are? But it is possible because we can do it knowing that when we do, it's not the end, but the start of a new beginning. And so David can really, really face up to his sin. Did you see how he did that in verses 3 to 6? He really goes to town on it, doesn't he? First, he faces up to the depth of his sin. Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Or verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Notice, it's not just that he's facing up to doing the wrong thing. No, here he confesses to being the wrong person. Sin is not just what we do. It's who we are in our DNA, he says. From the moment of conception, surely I was sinful at birth, tainting everything we do. My sin is always before me. 
Again, does that seem a little negative? Well, perhaps. But actually, isn't it just real? Realistic? Um, Andy reminded me this week that I've probably got to convince you guys of this truth. Preachers always say, don't they, if you want proof of this truth, of the depth of human sin, that it's part of us right from the beginning, then just ask yourself, do you have to teach your children to be bad? Or does it just come naturally to them? My little boy, three years old, only just three, hits me. We don't hit him. We've not taught him to hit in anger. But violence just comes naturally to him. Sin is inbuilt. But let me be clear. Because you see, I've had 38 years to be better than that and and grow better than that and train to be better than that. But... I lash out in anger. Okay, but am I dirty washing in public? When I first got married, I, I used to smash plates. I was so angry with Amy about the most ridiculous things. She hadn't washed up properly. She'd washed up. Should have been thankful. But there was a bit of tomato sauce still on the plate. Ugh! Isn't that appalling? You see, we might not... Uh, Well, I might not fly off the handle in the supermarket anymore, like my three-year-old. But I do it behind closed doors. Oh boy, do I have temper tantrums. The truth is we're sinful from start to finish. Sinful all the way down. The depth of our sin. And it's not that... Nothing we do is ever good. Oh no, there is much that is good and amazing about all of us. We're made in the image of God, his masterpiece, fearfully and wonderfully made. And much of that beauty remains. But sin is the rip in the canvas that wrecks the composition that's always there. The fly in the ointment, unavoidably wrecking what should be just beautiful, but now is ugly as well. Well, so much for the depth of our sin. Now for the height. Addressing God, David says, verse 4, did you see? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. It's interesting, isn't it? I guess this could sound like David is telling Uriah's family to stop seeking compensation for the death of their son. It's not you I've really hurt, but God, you leave me alone now. It could sound like David is minimizing his sin, but it'll only sound that way if we're ignorant of the God he claims to have offended. You see, by claiming that God is the ultimate offended party, David is actually maximizing his sin, heightening it. In fact, he's he's saying that the root cause of his sin against people is his rebellion against God. The reason he's treated his fellow creatures as though he had the right to take away their life is because he's played at being the creator. He's usurped God. 
And now the giver of life has the right to take his life for what he's done. There's no crime more serious than rejecting the giver of life. It's the crime that leads to all other crimes. The height of David's sin. Here then is real repentance. It's coming to God and saying, I am a sinner. I have no right to appeal. Verse 4, your judgment is right. I deserve to die. And only your mercy, only your mercy gives me hope that forgiveness is possible. I guess I just want to ask, have you felt the weight of that? Have you ever done it? Can I assure you that if you do, you won't be turned away. But you'll be washed. Whiter than snow. But it doesn't come naturally to us, does it? Have you heard of the non-apology apology? It's some, uh, a political uh, tool, isn't it? Pretty Patel is a bit of an expert at it. Not that I'm getting it, Pretty Patel, especially, because my hunch is that if we were to all analyse our own apologies, we'd find ourselves all doing the same thing. But do you remember, in the bullying scandal, rather than saying, I have hurt people, I'm sorry, I have hurt people, Pretty's apology went like this. I want to apologize if I have hurt anybody. If. Subtle, isn't it? Or maybe not. But she's not admitting her guilt, is she? She was pressed on whether she really had hurt people, so she followed up with this. See the sleight of hand here. I want to apologize to anyone who feels they have been hurt. Shifting the blame. Not I have hurt people, but I apologize that some people feel I have hurt them. In other words, they're the problem. They're feelings, not me. It's a proper politician's apology. But when it comes to repenting, you see, there's a little bit of a politician in all of us. Or maybe a lot, actually. And that's what makes this politician's repentance in Psalm 51... So breathtaking. This leader, this king, David, he's not ducking and weaving, not shifting blame onto others. He comes clean before God and Israel about his guilt. He admits that he, yes, he is the problem and always has been. And that verse 4, God is absolutely right to condemn him as a murderer, adulterer, a sinner and a transgressor. So will we follow his lead? Will we follow David's lead? I wonder what your reaction has been over the last two weeks as we've heard uncomfortable teaching about our ungodly love of money or the cruel way we use our words to tear each other to pieces, slandering one another. Have you gone away saying, yes, that's me? I measure myself by my money. I use my words to hurt people for my gain. 
I am a sinner. Or have you ducked and weaved? Can I say that if the last two Psalms haven't led the majority of us to feel our need for mercy, then perhaps something has gone terribly wrong in our culture here at Forward. I guess it's good, I guess it's possible, isn't it, that we could be confused into thinking that repentance was something we did once, but certainly not something we have to keep doing over and over. Well, now, of course, it is possible to be overly morose and navel-gazing when it comes to our sin. I find it striking, again, that many of the Psalms, David, David talks of his righteousness and celebrates the good, the, the good things he has done in leading God's people. He does. And there are only seven penitential Psalms. Isn't that striking, out of 150? And yet there are seven, and they are key psalms. Here is the beginning of a block of psalms of David after having heard the psalms of the sons of Korah and Asaph. And we begin with this new picture of David with this key psalm, him repenting, admitting his sin. You see, repentance is a key ingredient in the Christian life. It's not just the way in. It's also the way on. Not for nothing did Jesus teach us to pray daily as we just prayed. Forgive us. Forgive us our sins. So perhaps you don't have to feel the weight of this in exactly the same way every day. But is repentance like this the basic attitude of your heart towards God always? That's the challenge. Because without that basic attitude, you simply will not worship him rightly. And that's where the psalm takes us next. Verses 10 to 19. After first really repenting, verses 1 to 9. Then comes right worship, verses 10 to the end. You see, having faced up to the height and depth of his problem, David can now turn to God for help. He knows that what he needs is heart surgery. There's no papering over the cracks here, no attempt to shift the blame. I am the problem, my rebel heart is the problem. So verse 10, verse 10, create in me A pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David knows that if he ever is going to have hope of worshipping God rightly, then it has to come from God doing a work inside David, in his heart, by the Spirit. Someone has to turn the rhino into a new creature. Someone has to turn the sinner into a saint. And God has the power to do it by his spirit. David's dependence on God to change him so that he can worship aright, it runs all through verses 10 to 19. Did you see it? As well as verse 10, there's verse 12. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's verse 15. Open my lips, Lord, and then my mouth will declare your praise. 
There's verse 18. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. It all has to come from God. His restoration, his rebuilding, unless he works to change, to remake and restore his people, we cannot worship him rightly. But he will. He's promised to. And his restoration will be total. Did you see the hope here? There's right worship in 10 to 19 in every way. It begins in David's heart, in his spirit, in verses 10 to 12. Then in 13 to 15, it moves to his words. And then finally, in 16 to 19, it leads to humble-hearted sacrifices. A matching up of attitude and action. God's restoration of David is whole from head to toe, touching every corner of his emotions, his joy in God's salvation, his brokenheartedness at his own sin, his being, his new heart, his new spirit, his living, right sacrifices, verse 19. Do you remember Psalm 50? From last week, again, many of you will have missed it. I did, I was on holiday, but um, Matt gave me a preview of what he was going to say. So I think, I hope, last week, that Matt showed you how some Israelites use the sacrificial system to buy God off, whilst all the while they refuse to repent of their evil actions, especially their evil words. Is that what Matt showed you? If you're here, you've got one nod. Great, good. Well, can you see that everything that was wrong with the people's worship in Psalm 50 is now put right in Psalm 51? David's not trying to hide his sin with hypocritical sacrifices anymore. Instead, he uncovers his sin. He comes clean. And then beginning from the heart, he seeks God's help to change. His words are not words of slander like in Psalm 50, but now they're words of thanks and praise. Open my lips, verse 15, and my mouth will declare your praise. Remember how in Psalm 50, God demanded a a sacrifice of praise. Well, here it is. And finally, his sacrifices are brought, not in an attempt to buy God's favor, but out of a place of broken-hearted dependence. Before he offers bulls on the altar, verse 19, he comes to God bringing, verse 17, a broken spirit. What a, what a turnaround from Psalm 50. What an antidote to religious hypocrisy. Do you see that repentance? It's not just the route to real worship, it's the antidote to the religious hypocrisy of Psalm 50. Now, we've got to say, haven't we, that we could be confused by verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. We could be confused into thinking that God doesn't want us to make any sacrifices. But David doesn't end that way, does he? Verse 19, he will bring bulls. 
And when it comes to the New Testament, of course, the sacrifices have changed. We don't offer animals anymore. But they haven't been done away with. The sacrifices, the worship we are to offer has been heightened by the New Testament. Do you know what we're meant to bring as a sacrifice to God? Our whole selves. Living sacrifices, says Paul. And I guess it could be easy, couldn't it? As we try to do that, as, as, as we give to the building for the future fund, sacrificing our money, as we give to serve in church, twiddling those buttons at the back, I don't really understand how they work. Hey, John. Giving our time when we're so short of time. Giving our, our love to one another. It could be that we just start to think that somehow we have earned God's favor. Unless repentance remains the basis of all our worship. In view of God's mercies, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Real worship begins not with what we do for him, but with facing up to the ways we have failed him. Real worship is fueled by first daily experiencing his forgiveness and looking to him in broken-hearted dependence to help us and heal us and then giving our lives to him. And can I say that if you have experienced the unfailing love of a God who treats evil people with such kindness as this, then actually it's easy to give your life to him. We love because he first loved us and gave his only son so that whoever believes in him may not die but have eternal life. It's breathtaking the love that God has shown us in Christ. The sacrifice that has been made by the son of God for us. And when we grasp that, all our sacrifices for him are given with joy. Well, David's repentance is model, isn't it? A real model for us. It's not hard to see why Psalm 51 is so well-loved by Christians. It just captures the whole dynamic of the Christian life, doesn't it? It's also a model for us leaders. If we want to set an example of right worship, worship, first we must set an example of real repentance. I guess that's going to involve being vulnerable about our weaknesses, open about our failures. Now don't worry, I'm not going to get up and do my dirty washing in public every week. Only seven penitential psalms. But I know lots of you want leaders who are willing to be real in that way. We'll pray that God would help us to be. But you know, although David's repentance is model here, and although your leaders at Fullwood are going to try in the future to model ourselves on him more and more, let's not forget the other thing this psalm is teaching us. Ultimately, all human leaders must model repentance only because we fail to be the leaders that you really need. 
That's the cold, hard reality of this psalm. That whenever a human is leading other humans, those other humans are in danger from his leadership. Adultery. Murder. So yeah, let's follow David's lead. And I and the other leaders at Fullwood will try to grow in leading you in David's lead. Transparency, vulnerability, honesty about our failings. But above all, as we all fail, let's keep looking to the one leader who we can trust to never use us wrongly, to never abuse those in his care. The one who always shepherds us faithfully in love and compassion. The one leader who would not, could not harm a hair on our heads once we've entrusted ourselves into his care. You see, yes, Psalm 51 can help us repent, to really repent. But above all, it's pointing us to the one who doesn't need to. Because we can trust him utterly. Because he is good through and through. Let's pray that God would send him back to us quickly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly and take the rule that belongs to you whose goodness is higher than the heavens and whose mercy reaches down as deep as sinners like us. In you we trust. Come back to us. Amen.